Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode 98. In today's episode, I interview upper cervical master, Dr. Drew Virgilino. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to learn more about upper cervical chiropractic, digital infrared thermography, and how kettlebells and the Turkish getup can all improve your mobility. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Dr. Drew Versolino. Dr. Drew, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. Oh, man, 10 sentences or less. Okay, did I already just waste a couple of them? Yeah, I mean, they're all gone. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, 10 sentences or less. Jeez. Um, I think uh, both of my... Yeah, approximately, yeah. Uh, I think both of my parents, uh, growing up, raised us to be um, more of a natural sort of approach for things. Uh, when things got bad, we would, you know, go to the doctor and get prescriptions for whatever it might be. But um, And I remember my dad always having a garden and um, teaching us about how to do that, eating natural foods and making smoothies and all that kind of stuff. And when you got sick, try to eat garlic and boost up your veggies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the true health journey really started when I was 16 when I went and saw my uh, first chiropractor who was actually treating both my parents because I had back pain. I thought it would be a great thing, but he said something to me that uh, I'll never forget. And it's, um, he just said, your body has the ability to heal itself. And that was a concept that I sort of intuitively knew, but not ever put in those words. And uh, ever since then, I was 16, never, I've never taken a medication or anything since then. And uh, I feel like doing the, the natural sort of things that I've done uh, has just led me to a place where I rarely ever get sick. And now it's time. I finally graduated from chiropractic school almost two years ago now. And uh, just been preaching this message of trying to help people and in a natural way, and 
it's just been fun, man. Uh, I love I love and enjoy helping people. Right on, right on. Well, if you wouldn't mind going into uh, even maybe some of the your schooling, whether it be undergrad, chiropractic, because you're also uh, you also um, really go with the upper cervical spine, correct? Yeah. So. Yeah, kind of give the rundown um, on everything and why that's such a big deal, please. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so when I was 16, met that first chiropractor, uh, and I immediately, I mean, I went home, I don't know if it was the next day, told my grandma, I was like, yeah, yeah I want to be a chiropractor. And uh, so that next semester in high school, actually, I took uh, a anatomy physiology class, uh, took a couple in undergrad. I actually changed, and I was going to go into accounting as a major, mm-hmm. and then um, did all my prereqs, eventually ended up at San Jose State with uh, kinesiology, and then finally went to chiropractic school. And the journey that set me off on this upper cervical thing was uh, my wife had actually had some low back issues going on. Um, she was doing some weightlifting, and... Um, you know, I was training her, and something just threw out her back, and so she she couldn't even walk for a couple of days. And uh, I was current. I was seeing a, a different chiropractor at that time, and took her in, and she gave her some temporary relief by adjusting her low back, and that was able to get her walking. But for two years, she continued to have nagging low back pain that just never went away. Got worse when you know she did lots of activity. Um, and it was getting frustrating because that was starting to change how we would live our lives and, you know, go about doing things, or in this case, not go do things because she was in pain. Yeah. And uh, first semester, or first quarter in chiropractic school, I never heard about upper cervical until I got okay. there. And uh, I think it was week number two, you know, philosophy one, where you start to learn about the sort of philosophy on chiropractic, um, we really delve into it. And uh, I, I heard all these different things. And as a student, you and your spouse, and if you have kids, get free care at the clinic, at school. So I brought my wife, and I was like, you know what? We've tried everything else. Why don't you give this upper cervical thing a try? And uh, I believe it was her second adjustment. Um, she said that she was sitting there afterwards and she got this intense feeling all throughout her body. Everything sort of uh, got tight. And then about five seconds later, everything just released and immediately her back pain was gone. And I was, I, I, I'm a critic, right? Or a hypocrite, not a hypocrite, <laughs> but I'm a critic. So right. I was like, no, this has got to be some sort of fluke. Maybe it was just the chair you were sitting in. Uh, I don't know what's going on here. But uh, without even saying anything later that week, we were working out together like it was nothing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the next day I said, hey, you know what? You didn't even complain about your back pain. And week after week, she kept on getting checked and not being adjusted, which is a whole new concept for most people for a chiropractor. <laughs> um, you know, she she yeah. no longer had her back pain, and then what other things started to clear up too, like uh, her skin was no longer dry, and just all these different things that were happening to her was just amazing. So at that point, I was like, okay, I have insomnia. Let me go and see if this will help me. 
Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I, I got under care, and about four or five weeks later, I started sleeping throughout the night. Was able to actually focus a little bit better in class, and from that point on, I was like, I don't know if I can honestly do other other chiropractic work uh, for people that I really want to treat. And um, so that kind of led me off on that upper cervical path. But I could go on forever and and talk about the whole journey if it's. Well, if you wouldn't mind, go into a little bit more than what is it about the upper cervical spine that almost separates it from the rest of the spine, if you will? Oh, gotcha. So from a from a sort of more of a anatomical, scientific uh, approach to that, we talk about mechanoreceptive input and disafferentation. So to, to break that down, we got to kind of go a little bit into neurology and how that really works. Mm-hmm. But but if you think about how that works, is uh, just think about reflexes. So if I hit your, you know, tendon right below your patella, your knee's gonna, your, your leg's gonna kick up. Right, that's a common one. People can recognize that for sure. Exactly. Or you touch a hot stove, you immediately pull your hand back. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. So those are your reflexes. But other things in your body are reflexes as well. It just they don't. They don't move your entire body. So, for instance, if you eat, uh, let's just say, an egg that hits your, you know, eventually gets down to your stomach, well, how do you think your stomach is actually going to start producing acid and, you know, the whole digestive process? Well, not the beginning of the digestive process, but somewhere in the middle. How does that sort of kick on? Well, that food hits your stomach the cells in your stomach get stimulated. They send signals up to the brain. The brain then sends signals back down to the stomach and the rest of the digestive organs to begin that process. So that's another sort of reflex. Up in the upper cervical spine, the the neck muscles up there, they're really tiny. They're like an inch or so long. They let your brain know exactly where your head is in space. And we have another reflex called the writing reflex because we always want to keep our eyes level with the horizon. So it's a very deeply rooted reflex that affects pretty much your entire body from your posture all the way down to your other autonomic functions. Um, And so when those muscles are off, they basically send garbled information to the brainstem. And if you've ever heard that analogy, garbage in is garbage out. Absolutely. That's that's sort of the way it works, and you get a you get a bombardment of afferentation or stimulus going at the brain, and those bits of information have priority over different parts of your body. I'm much more your brain can be much more preoccupied with where your head is in space than how much uh, how big your big toe how big the uh, toenail is on your big toe, or um, how much hair do you need to grow on your legs? It's much more preoccupied with where your head is in space. So all those calculations are going on in your brain at the same time, and it has to sort of prioritize what has the most what has the most value and it's going to protect you for the sense of survival and adaptation. So I guess the key word, if you were to rewind it all back, if that if I didn't lose everyone by now. <laughs> <laughs> the, key, the key the key word to remember is survival and adaptation. Right. If your head is not on straight, 
and you're not able to, one, move your neck properly, but if you're not hearing the proper, um, or if you're not hearing clearly, you can't turn, you can't see clearly. If you're out in the jungle or whatever it is and you see a lion and you have to run and go and do things, but but your head's not quite on right, so you get off balance and you fall, that's not a good thing. Um, and so this whole thing survives around those two principles of survival and adaptation. Yeah, it sounds like it's a pretty pretty big deal then. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wish we had a... Uh, maybe I can send you some notes later, but there's a pretty uh, simple... Uh, arrow diagram that kind of shows you when you have misinformation into the brainstem that causes this this term that we use of disafferentation mm -hmm. basically brain overload and from there it creates a whole host of problems and the thing is is if we're saying that you have a problem at the level of the autonomic nervous system mm -hmm. then you have to kind of wonder what's what's incorporated within the autonomic nervous system. And now you just look down the chain and it just blows up from there. Yeah, and so the thing as, as a clinician is, how do we measure that? And how do we measure it in a non-invasive way where it's repeatable uh, amongst practitioners and then repeatable amongst uh, the same practitioner and how we make a determination of whether or not that person actually could benefit from getting... Uh, getting care, getting an adjustment. So if we look at that model, then we say, okay, well, I'm not going to um, do an MRI every single time you come in. That's, that's invasive. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to hook you up to an EKG every time you come in. That takes quite a while. I'm not going to put you on a stress test. And so you start eliminating all these other ways to test autonomic function, you know, looking at the size of your pupils, that's a very, very fine and hard detail to look at. But if we look at temperature regulation of the body, that's a very well understood uh, way of checking for this autonomic function. And so for any any two given points on the body, let's just say your right thumb and your left thumb, mm -hmm. they should be within a very narrow temperature difference. That makes a lot same of sense, then, yeah. yeah. Same thing with your face. Your face should all be fairly symmetrical when it comes to its temperature. I, I come from a movement background. SMS was kind of like my one of my fundamental learning platforms for movement. You're looking mm -hmm. for symmetry and balance. Absolutely. Um, same thing happens for the autonomic function. So we're, so we're looking for symmetry and balance when it comes to heat regulation because that's a, a function of the brainstem. And... Uh, then we can have the technology that we have in our office to check that, make sure it's working properly. If it's not, then that's time to intervene. And if it is working properly, then we just leave that patient alone because at a fundamental core, the body's healing itself, right? So if we introduce something that's abnormal, we could have a negative effect on that. Okay, so then I'm curious. Like, uh, I've gone to an upper cervical uh, chiropractor before, and... Sure. Now, do you, do you still start, like, first visit when they come, like, in with an x-ray to see uh, angles on everything uh, on the initial visit? Yeah, exactly. So we want to make sure 
we we understand normal biomechanics according to the you know biomechanic textbook white and Punjabi. Mm-hmm. That's like the, if anyone knows about biomechanics, <laughs> white and Punjabi is the it's just a very very boring textbook to read, but it tells you how the bones are supposed to move in a given motion. Mm-hmm. So we take we take uh, three dimensional films mm-hmm. um, to give us a, a biomechanical look at what what things are going on, and in most people's cases, what are not going on that's causing this neurological problem. So yeah, we take the X-rays in the first exam um, to see what's going on, and then if if indicated at a later point during that person's care, then we may we may follow up with another set of X-rays. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if we're balancing out the nervous system through the treatment, then um, and everything's working fine, they're getting better. Uh, we don't want to re-expose them to X-rays unnecessarily. But if they get in a car accident or um, we had a suspicion about certain curves in their spine, then we may we may follow up with another set of films. Okay, and then from there, like you said, now is. Because I, I'm curious kind of how you you go about that then. Like, you, you always check then. Like, I'm sure, like, very specific sensors, but you always check, like, is it thumb temperature or do you use other measures when they come in for their follow-up visits? And is that kind of your uh, baseline check for that reflex? Like, okay, if this is symmetrical, everything is holding uh, as it should? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't okay. get into that. Yeah, so the uh, the instrument that we use is called digital infrared thermography. Okay. So the way I explain that to people is like, have you ever seen the movie Predator, where where the uh, where the example. alien thing puts the glasses on, everything has a heat signature, right? Yeah. Um, that's that's infrared thermography. Every everything that's um, every piece of um, living material, I guess, and even dead material, it emits a, a certain temperature. Mm-hmm. And these cameras or these sensors can pick up on that. And so what we use is an instrument that rolls up the spine to check for spinal symmetry of temperature. That doesn't sound okay. like that doesn't sound like much to most people, but if we reverse back to what I said previously, that yeah. temperature regulation is all controlled by the brainstem. So we're actually measuring brainstem function at that point. But it kind of looks like uh, it was actually modeled after a, uh, I can't remember what type of pistol, but it, the the handle looks like a pistol. Correct, yeah. And um, and it just rolls up your spine and it gives us a, a digital reading up on the screen. Mm-hmm. And that's up to us as a practitioner to read that. And so it's similar to, have you ever seen an EKG? Mm-hmm where it has all the different bumps and lines and stuff like that. But right. if you were to look at it as a as an untrained cardiologist, you would say, oh, that just looks like a bunch of bumps and lines. But to the cardiologist, that means something. Same, and then, same thing, same thing we, for you. Okay. Yeah, we get, a, we get a digital reading that comes out, and patients will look at it, and they're like, oh, that looks like a squiggly line. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> We're like, yeah, but this is this is what it means. Is there something going on here? But it also means we can help you. So that's at that point, that's when we would take the X-rays to see how we're going to need to go about helping them as far as adjustment. All right, very cool. Well, now yeah. I want I want to blend this in and I want to ask you about kind of uh, maybe your your other passion, uh, at least that I know of, uh, which would be kettlebells. Then. Mm-hmm. 
So what what is uh, what does your practice look like with, for that? And do you combine the two at all? Like with I mean the the whole uh, chiropractic care with kettlebells with other movement practices then too. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, actually, I don't really combine the two. Um, mm-hmm. I, I keep them somewhat separate. Every once in a while, I get a patient that asks, that asks me about it, and um, you know, I'll refer them to a local gym where there's some trainers that know what they're doing. But um, what I typically, what I what I really like to do is just another passion I, that I have is it's a cool sport that you can actually compete in. And what I really enjoy about it is there's a there's sort of a team environment because you have other people that are quote unquote on your team. Okay. But but you're not relying on them to get the job done. It's all up to you because it's you, the kettlebell, ten minutes, and you, have to go, <laughs> you know. Um, so although you like to train with your team, when it comes to when it comes time and you're on the platform, it's all in your own mind. Um, now, how does the team competition work? Because that I, w- I only know a little bit about kettlebells. Like I had Mike Salini on the show. Like we talked about that. But I wasn't aware that there's also like a, a team component to it. So I'm interested. How does that all work, too? Uh, it's more so. Yeah. So Mike's awesome. I, I'm working with him to do some kettlebell workshops. He's, he's an awesome, brilliant guy. And um, but the team component is more so just just training with people because uh, they have these different competitions. Like there's one coming up in a couple weeks uh, down down near the LA area. And um, the gym that I would go to to train with people when I'm when I'm in the Bay Area is uh, OKC Orange Kettlebell Club. Okay. And um, I'll go there. Sometimes Mike will go there, and there's there's a group of people that go and train there all the time. And you know, you just kind of you want your teammates in that gym who you you know you're you're all going through the same thing. You want them to do well, so you just kind of root each other on. But even when you go to the competition, the other people from other gyms, there's no rivalries or any of that kind of stuff. It's, you're just trying to support because you know what that person's going through when they're eight minutes deep and they can barely hold on to the bells. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it's just a mental challenge at that point. So you're just cheering everyone on. But, you know, your team, you just kind of want to have a, you know, support for each other and sort of represent the gym that you're at and just have a good time. So it's not really like a team like Olympic sports. If everyone gets first place and you get something, it's it's more so just people you're used to, you know. Well, no, I didn't know if there was like a, a team scoring on it too, like if it was uh, groups of four or something like that. That's, that's what I was checking to see. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I've heard something about that, but to be honest, I, re- I really don't um, – I really don't know. I heard something about a relay, like one person would do – a five minute, and the other person, the second person, do the five minutes, and they have a combined mm-hmm. score. I, I've heard of that, but I don't really know how that works. So it, there might be. Sure, yeah. I'm sure that as the sport evolves, they're going to start to develop stuff like that. And you could, I, and like you just said, you could come up with it that way. You could do probably a million and one other ways, whether it be just with clean and jerks, with snatches, and combining, and so on and so forth. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Because it's there's the three different lists, right? There's clean and jerk also known as the long cycle, then there's just the jerk, and then there's the snatch. So um, some guys will compete in all three. Some guys just do one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, Is the time length the same for all of them? Yeah. In the 
um, what would you call it, in the professional ranking, where mm-hmm. people actually see different ranks, it's 10 minutes. Okay. But but for beginners, if you just want to if you just want to sort of get a taste of it, they have a five minute set. That seems like a good place to start for most people because trying to hang on to a kettlebell for that long, yeah, you know, yeah. two of them adds up very quickly. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean I remember when I did my RKC back in '09, I thought a five minute snatch test was the hardest thing on the planet. You know, <laughs> well and, it's, uh, it's not an easy thing, that's for sure. Yeah, but I mean, you get multiple hand switches, and you can put the bell down. And I heard about this: ten minutes, one hand switch. You can't put the bell down. Uh, I was like, man, these guys are freaks. Like, how do they do it? <laughs> and that's where the that's where the actual technique uh, begins to to vary a little bit among, amongst people because you're looking for you're looking for a different form of energetic efficiency instead of getting as much work done in as short of time as possible by mm-hmm. uh, over-accentuating the, the snap of the hips and contracting everything as tight as you can throughout the movement. It's, you're trying to give the bell the exact amount of energy needed to get it from approximately you know below your knees to overhead, nothing more, nothing less, so that your energy can last you that 10 minutes. What I found is... Uh, it's not so much that you're kind of out of breath. I mean, you do get out of breath as the weight gets mm-hmm. heavier, but what gets taxed the most is your grip because of that one-hand switch. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, with that, like, do you, so if you're training your grip, do you just do kettlebells or do you do other things, like, to try and train your grip to be able to go for 10 minutes with a bell? Yeah, that's a that's like an ever ever evolving uh, part of my programming is trying to figure out what's going to get me the biggest uh, or the most benefit, right? So yeah, I know when I train with Mike, he'll he's like, all right, pick up some heavy bells and we're going to hold them for six minutes. So <laughs> that's uh, that's one thing that that that's uh, that's actually shown a great benefit. It's just doing some farmers carries or just standing still with you know a pair of heavier bells than I would actually use in the competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and holding on to them for a while, uh, just straight up farmer's carries, even if it's a shorter time period, because you're trying to go for more of the endurance. Um, well, well, I think one thing that I learned early on in my training was we often like to train the muscles that are the ones that get used the most. So in this case, it would be the flexors of the fingers and the wrist flexors and things like that. Mm-hmm. But going back to that balance and symmetry thing, you got to also strengthen the extensors because you need to protect your wrist joint and your elbow joint. And a lot of those muscles cross both of those joints. And so you need to make sure that you're not having, you're not getting this imbalance because then you're going to get, uh, you know, I mean, you're going to get a whole host of things going on in your elbows and your wrists. And you're going to think it's, uh, oh, I have bicep tendonitis or, I have this, I have that, when really it's just you need to strengthen the other muscles and it'll sort of balance itself out. And I think that's hard for some people to grasp because looking at, like, shoulder and neck posture, you can see very easily as people just kind of fall forward there, which is, I mean, so common in our population today. But looking at an elbow and a wrist, like, it's hard to tell when that becomes 
significantly out of balance, as it often can be in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so this is kind of leading back into, you know, kind of a little bit, I guess, in my opinion, uh, going back to that question of how do I blend the training with this upper cervical practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I I can understand those concepts if I contemplate them or someone brings them up to me, such as balance and symmetry in your wrist and forearms. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not something that that in my office I'm going to be dealing with with someone. You know, I'll figure it out, and if they if I feel like they're going to benefit from seeing a trainer or a massage therapist or a physiotherapist or whatever it may be, PT. Right. Um, I'd much rather refer them out because I'm not a uh, I'm not an expert in that stuff. I just kind of can grasp it, and I'm like, I think you need to talk to an expert who can figure out what's exactly going on. But it sounds like this, and you're coming into this office. That's not what you're going to get. But right. But the thing is, is what if you just have a balance uh, uh, imbalance because your nervous system is not controlling everything properly? then you're going to get the benefit. So when people come into this office um, to see me, it's usually two different types of people. One, someone who's sick. They've been to other doctors. They've tried everything. Uh, and they're like, all right, I, you know, I've given up hope. Let's just see if this works. Mm -hmm. On the other side, it's that, it's that athlete, you know, someone like yourself, who is like, I, I'm already at this level. Let's see if we can take it to the next level by getting, you know, getting this nervous system thing balanced out. And that definitely makes a lot of sense because I'm when we're just talking about all this now too, and you're talking like, okay, using like the thermography, my mind, because something that I'll use uh, in my practice is uh, like a hand dynamometer. So I'm just looking at grip strength side to side, and then I'll have somebody, okay, uh, side bend their neck uh, towards that side, side bend away, and I'm just looking at other... Uh, compression points in, in the cervical spine, if you will. Uh, but all this kind of, it, it really all comes full circle. Like you said, it's just coming back to that, that balance and allowing, giving the body the ability to heal itself. And that can really uh, go a long ways, whether it's just, hey, return to health or, hey, we're talking about, hey, trying to lift kettlebells for 10 minutes straight. Either way, uh, it can have a lot of profound impacts. Yeah, and... Um... I just shared this picture the other day on my, on my Facebook page. It's just a very simple diagram um, that I pulled out of one of my neurochemistry, you know, functional neurology books. But it's it's a simple diagram that just says uh, central nervous system, arrows pointing to and coming back from the immune system, and then arrows pointing to and coming back from your endocrine system. And then endocrine and um, immune system also going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And when you look, when you look at that, you're like, okay, this is much much bigger than uh, postural tone and working on all this stuff. We're talking about the immune system and the endocrine system, which is and the whole name of the game, right? It's you're going to go train. You may have the best training program in the world, and you know this is written by the guy who set all the records and all this stuff. and But if you're not adapting to that because your endocrine system is a little bit off or your immune system is not sending the proper inflammatory markers to make sure that you're, you know, you're rebuilding your muscle properly, then 
you're you're going to be limited by your ability to recover. That's that's the point I look at it for athletes. You know, it's like I already know you have all that stuff on lock. Like your training's good, your eating's good, your sleep's good, but are you recovering in between? You know, mm-hmm. so there's different there's different reco- recovery modalities like the you know ice baths and cold therapy and and uh, float tanks and getting soft tissue work done. But what's governing that whole thing? That's that's kind of the point I look at it is let's let's work on that brain see if that's working properly. All right, so I'm I'm guessing uh, probably pretty safe to say you have that part of it going <laughs> for yourself. Like you have the brain uh, going properly, you have everything in line, upper cervical spine. What else do you use uh, for yourself for just recovery practices to be able to train at your best? Gotcha. So um, I I like to get a massage at least twice a month. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, sometimes I'll get it more focused, but I, I kind of like to do a blend of just a relaxation sort of massage just to get everything loosened up and then if I'm going through something, if it's my shoulder, I mean, I've had a previous injury to my shoulder from, um, I was never really competitive in jiu-jitsu, but I, I like to train, and, and a couple of times I didn't tap early enough. And uh, <laughs> so uh, getting in a key lock or, or an arm bar or a kimura, whatever it may be, like I, there's uh, there's been a few times where I didn't tap early enough. So whatever yeah. is dysfunctional up there, I'll get that work done. Um, I'm really digging... The float tanks right now. Um, there's one local here to me in Chico. When I've been down to the Bay Area, I've tried out one there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are an awesome recovery just because it eliminates all the stimulus so it allows your body just to focus on healing itself, essentially. At least that's the way it works in my mind. I mean, there's probably some science behind it that I don't know about, but that stuff's awesome. Um, I also am experimenting right now with... Uh, have you ever heard of Wim Hof and his breathing... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm experimenting with that right now to see um, if I can, if that'll just help me out in recovery standpoint, but also just help me with, you know, increase in different, uh, you know, one rep max and things like, things like that. And then I'm also experimenting with the cold showers and uh, just doing things like that. I, I'm not like a big time biohacker, but I like to play with different things. Um, and also experimenting with with food. I don't take much supplements. I'll maybe mm-hmm. take vitamin D if if the sun's not coming out for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then whenever I get the chance, I'll. Uh, I just like to eat foods that are rich in certain nutrients. So most people don't like organ meats, but I like to focus on heart meat, liver, uh, things like that that are super nutrient dense. Oysters. Um, but those are, I guess, massage, cold therapy, the float tank, working on my breathing, and then also just like corrective exercises and a lot of self work. Um, you know, well, you if you wouldn't mind sharing, then like some of uh, how do you blend like the corrective ex- exercise with really your like you talked about one round maxes before, like with that with the kettlebell work, like what does that uh, training look like for you? Gotcha. So I always go through a very thorough like joint mobility warm up. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever trained with if you've ever trained with Mike, I mean, I think last time we trained together it was like almost forty five minutes of just warm up. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But uh, I, I typically do something around 15, 20 minutes of just joint mobility, getting everything to a full range of motion. Okay. And then, and then I'll start to get into more of a corrective thing. And for me, it's it's my hip flexors and QL, the quadricular form that tends to be a little bit tight or I'll have an imbalance. And so I like simple things. Uh, marching, simple as that is, uh, there's something about firing off both sides of your brain. Um, marching with being able to touch your opposite side if you break that down a little bit, that would be something like the bird dog. So reach out with mm-hmm. your right arm, left leg. Um, but you go to a standing, so you're changing your position. You're changing the different axes and um, making it more true to what I'm about to do, right? Because you, you don't lift laying, laying on your stomach. Um, so I'll do a little bit of marching. I like to, I like to use the Turkish get-up and its different components from the half-kneeling windmill position to, you know, from laying flat on your back to rolling up for um, thoracic mobility, hip mobility. I, I, I basically break down the Turkish get-up, and I'll, I'll spend a good 20 minutes just on that with a lighter bell. Yeah. Um, and and go through some different ranges of motion, get my shoulders moving really well. I haven't and, uh, thought about that. No, I, thank you for that one. Like, as just a nice really getting everything moving, uh, there's not much that that really doesn't help to touch on and open up for you. Yeah, and and so if someone was to actually look at what my training is, major, you know, if you were to break out the, the hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long session, mm-hmm. a majority of the time is spent on mobility work. Um, because it's like, yeah, I might, I, I could probably spend less time and pull a relatively close number Mm-hmm. But what? How am I going to recover from that? Am I am I prepared? Am I going to be tighter the next day? Is there a more likely possibility of pulling a muscle or straining something just because I didn't warm up properly? And the thing I always like to focus on is what's the goal behind the training? You know, um, am I training to compete or am I just training to get a little bit stronger? Mm-hmm. There's no medal to be won. There's no money to be won. There's no prize. Whatever. If I don't hit a lift for whatever reason, uh, I'm not going to go and try it again without giving myself a proper rest. Because what's what's the point? You're just you're likely to get injured. So that's where I fo- you know focus more on mobility work. But it's really fun, and what I'm what I'm putting together now is sort of a series called strength stretching. Um, okay sort of a blend of what I've learned just being in that RKC world and a lot of Pavel's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he focuses on getting some mobility stuff going on and being able to be strong, being being able to have your muscles be strong in a lengthened position. And I think, yes. I think, I think a lot of trainers um, forget about that when you're, let's just say you're going to try to do the front splits, right? So one leg in front of you, one leg in behind you. Mm-hmm. When you're in that position, the muscles are at their essentially they're they're stretched out to as long as they can go, and they're the weakest at that point. Uh, it, it would take forever to explain that going into physics, but the muscles. No, are no, no. I mean, I, I think most people can maybe at least have a grasp on that. Like you can always tell, like 
when you're when you're struggling with something in, in that range of motion, you don't really feel strong all the time. Exactly. So I, I always say, like, if you're doing curls, the hardest part of a curl is getting it from waist level up to a 90-degree angle. And then once you get mm-hmm. there, it's pretty easy. Uh, so same thing for different muscles. If if they're not able to get in that get in that range of motion, it's probably because the muscle is weak and you just need to work at strengthening it there. But if we take it up and say, you know, if I can clear out that range of motion and, and be strong there, uh, will that translate over into when I'm in the shorter range of motion? Um, will the reflexes be intact to stabilize all the different joints to prevent me from injury? And if that's going, then I know that I'm going to have more focus on whatever muscle group it may be. Let's say it's a military press. You know, if your shoulders have a good range of motion, your thoracic spine has a good range of motion, your ribs are moving well because you're breathing well, you're more likely to get a better press. But if those things are locked down, uh, you're going to focus a lot on using your deltoid and little other stabilizers because you don't have the proper big sort of gross mechanics of shoulder and you're just not going to be able to get the numbers that you want to get. Yeah, I hadn't necessarily thought about, like you said, being strong in the lengthened position. Uh, I mean, I definitely agree with, like, because I've been really starting to add in a lot of uh, Zercher deadlifts uh, into my training, and I can just feel like I feel so much stronger uh, on all parts of, like, if you go just into a regular deadlift then, uh, just because I know that, hey, when I'm at that max range of motion, I can still lift that weight and feel good doing it. Now when I go into a more optimal position, it can fly off the floor. Yeah. What what is the what does the Zercher deadlift look like? I don't So that's that. where you basically deadlift the bar with your elbows. Like across oh, the crux okay. of your elbows. That. Yeah. Okay. So I mean you have to get I I can only do it uh like I can't even do it straight from the floor. Uh I have to set the like the bar or the, the, the weights up on 45-pound uh, bumper plates, so, like, what, maybe three inches off the floor. Uh, and even yeah. then, like, full spinal flexion. I mean, my hips, like, that's as much probably external rotation, hip flexion that I can get into possibly, but it helps me pull myself down to the floor. And I think weights can be even a great way to get flexibility, uh, but they can also be a great way to hamper it. But if I'm taking through that full range, then I still have to be strong through that full range, too. Yeah, exactly. So there's the uh, there, there's the catch twenty two, right? Like, kind of what, and then it kind of goes back to what's your goal. If you if you don't really care about being mobile, then then it doesn't really matter. But <laughs> you know, if you want to kind of maintain your mobility and have a less likely chance of getting injured, then you probably want to focus on that stuff. But yeah, that's that's a good point of going through that full range of motion. That's why I kind of like. Uh, like deficit deadlift, so you're standing up on the platform. Yes. And you've got to pick the bar up from lower. And uh, this is actually something I've been thinking a lot about lately is, is it necessarily a bad thing if someone has a little bit of spinal flexion as they're doing a deadlift? I'm, okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm dead on with you on this question, so give, give me your thoughts because I'm curious to hear her. Well, so the the common thought that I've heard, among, you know, in the, in the listing community is, and you'll see it on comments. It's kind of it's kind of crazy when people comment on other people's lists, but 
if someone has spinal flexion as they're doing, in particular a deadlift, because that's that's kind of the easiest one to talk about. Right. Um, most people are saying keep your spine neutral. That's where it's nice and strong. You don't want any flexion because then that will lead to pressure on your disc and you're going to mm-hmm. blow a disc or you'll strain a muscle. And it ha- I think it has to be a contextual sort of conversation because if I'm just picking up 85 pounds uh, and I have a little bit of spinal flexion, then I'm less likely to get injured than if I, compared to if I'm lifting up to 300 pounds, right? So right. that's one thing to think about. But the other thing is, when they do certain tests in labs, they're usually doing like to to measure at 95 psi is when the discs will burst, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, those are often well, I don't really know if they can be done in humans because you wouldn't want to just burst someone's disc just to test it out. <laughs> but they're uh, they're often done in cadavers and. Right cadavers don't have the ability to adapt because there's no there's no control they're not they're not regrowing tissues and so if we look at it from a from a living perspective of someone who's alive if you have someone who's been doing this movement over and over and over again sort of a, a grease the groove concept and you've been building up tissue strength um, all the soft tissue connective tissue then they may be able to get I, I think they may be able to w- to get away with picking up a heavier load with a little bit of spinal flexion. Um, take a look at take a look at for instance the uh, strongmen, you know, when they have to pick up those stones. That's the exact reason I do it. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of spinal flexion in that, but uh it tends to be more so in the thoracic spine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh But I'm now on the other point of that, then there's also the thoracic extension because if you're not extending at the top of those lists you're never going to finish the lift either. Exactly. So you need mobility in both. <laughs> you need mobility in both planes, right, or, or both right. directions. So it's a it's a it's an everlasting thing. And I think specifically for those like strongman guys, like they're really big dudes. Like I I've, I haven't really seen one that's not. Actually, I was watching a video the other day with uh, Klokov. Is that his name? The one of the famous weightlifters. Yes. Yes. Dmitry Klokov. Yeah, I mean that guy is jacked, super ripped, right? But he still has the mobility to move those stones and have some good thoracic mobility. Versus, you know, your average person who has a desk job and and is like a, you know, I go to the gym four days a week to lift. That guy probably shouldn't do much spinal flexion when he lifts. You know. Well, see, now I would disagree, and the reason being, like, not that. He's going to max out on it, but mm-hmm. somebody like that, if they're sitting, they're probably sitting in a lot of flexion, so they probably need to get a little stronger in that position, and sitting really isn't going to do it, but if they start with a very low load and eventually progress this over time, now they can progress and, I would say, even give them more resiliency uh, for, if, in this case, maybe the spine, uh, if they are sitting for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, uh, to at least be able to combat that and give a little bit more of the nutrition to the areas as well to get that motion back more so. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I probably said that wrong. No, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Like, they need to get strong in it. Is it. It's just more of a factor of, just like you said, it's a progression. So they want right. to start with 135 pounds, you know, 
they would start with the lighter load and, and systematically over time get stronger. And I think one of the things I, I, I read about was uh, who focuses on that a lot? I think it's uh, the gymnastics bodies. The Jefferson curl, yeah. Yeah, the Jefferson curl. That thing is amazing. Uh, yes. That's, that's a really cool uh, sort of lift to progress on over time. Um, but then also there's other things to strengthen the back itself. And, um, you know, something like a Superman, like where you're laying on your stomach, or uh, if you've ever heard of foundation training, awesome program for strengthening your spinal erectors and your posterior chain. What's it called? Foundation training, you said? Yeah, foundation training. It was okay. created by, by a chiropractor. It's, it's pretty awesome stuff. Take a look at it. But it. I think what it does is it focuses a lot on strengthening um, these fascial planes and... Um, I'm by no means an expert in it. I just I've tried it a couple times and it's uh, yeah it, it's been a game changer for me. So talking about all this different stuff here today, through like is there anything that you're currently just kind of diving in on, uh, whether it be working with the upper cervical spine, whether it be with kettlebells, or just something else that's really piquing your interest? Um. I mean, those those are the two things I guess that I focus the majority of my time on. Uh, well, then maybe also, even in those, it could be like just anything up and coming or anything that you've seen that you see uh, maybe on the horizon that's been hey really uh, enlightening for yourself. Well, I guess one thing that I find fascinating is this work in the upper cervical spine. It's nothing new. Uh, I don't want to go too off onto a history lesson about chiropractic, but um, <laughs> but uh, if you if you if you just simply hear about the original story of a guy who was deaf, got adjusted in his neck and second bone, and he got his hearing back, um, like that was 1895. Like that's all recorded. Like if you talk to any chiropractor who knows a little bit about the history of chiropractic, they would be able to tell you that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but ever since then, it's been an evolving thing of like, what it, what really what really happened? How do we measure it? Uh, what's going on? And it, it's got a little bit diluted over time because most people who used to see chiropractors back in the early 1900s, uh, they were coming with with like diseases and illnesses. They weren't coming with neck pain, back pain type of things. Um, but over time, it's that's what it sort of evolved into, um, and especially when the insurance game come around. It's like chiropractors can treat neck pain and things like that. But one of the things I find interesting is there's a lot of research that supports uh, chiropractic adjustments are good for uh, relieving neck pain and relieving back pain and relieving headaches. Uh, in some cases, it'll show more effective than different medications. It just depends on which study you pull up, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, what's interesting is, especially in the upper cervical world, we hear patients coming in quite often who have chronic migraines, um, chronic neck pain or shoulder pain. And I'm telling you, if you were to hear some of the stories these people tell about the stuff that they have to go through before they find us, I mean, one lady, she got her suboccipital, uh, if you just look at the suboccipital muscles, there's mm-hmm. uh, there's a bunch of different tiny muscles that connect C1 to C2, C1 to the occiput, 
due to the occiput, they severed, cut some of those muscles because they knew that there was a nerve that actually kind of goes underneath and through them. They thought that that nerve... Well, they thought that that nerve was being impinged by the tight muscles, and they thought this would be the treatment. And this is a this is a practice. You can, you can look it up, like suboccipital muscle cutting. I mean, I don't know what the name yeah, is. Yeah, it's something is. absolutely ridiculous, right? They do it, and uh, I'm sure there's a percentage of people that have you know um, relief of their migraines. But remember but for what how I long? said. <laughs> but for how long is one? This lady in particular got absolutely no relief. Now she's a bobblehead, right? Because yeah. she doesn't no have she doesn't have information going into her brainstem at the level that it should. Therefore, mm-hmm. the output is not going to be as good. And if you remember, this goes back into autonomic function. Given time, what's going to happen to that person to the rest of her autonomic portion of her body? We don't know. Um, but there's a chance that things can be altered. So that, that to me, is pretty disconcerting. The other portion that they're looking at, um, I can't remember the guy. I think his name is Scott Rosa. He was either the guy who invented the MRI or the upright MRI. Um, but this this guy is working with an upper cervical practitioner and looking at blood flow and CSF flow in patients with MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and what they're seeing is before and after treatment, there's a there's a restoration of this blood flow or CSF flow. And subsequent to that, the placking in their brains are starting to decrease. That is awesome. Yeah, so it's pretty it's pretty amazing stuff. And so like when I say like people with illnesses, those people will show up into our office and um you know, a, a majority of the time, I couldn't give you a percentage, but very often they get some relief, and sometimes, uh, you know, they get some resolution of what's going on with them. We can't say cure because that's like a right, you know, like a regulated word. But you know, they they get awesome results, and so this is being studied right now. This it's a whole new emerging sort of field because the technology is not quite there, um, and so the medical approach to that is they're actually. Um, it's a pretty crazy surgery, but they're um, they're sort of reaming out the foramen magnum, which is the hole in your occiput. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're basically cutting off the back part of your atlas, the post it's called the posterior arch. Yeah, they're cutting it out, removing it, and then also sort of. I mean, I, to explain to people, they're basically sanding out the inside of the foramen magnum to mm-hmm. get to create more space for this to happen. That's one thing. They're also doing a, they're also doing this uh other surgery uh, coming in through a vein through the leg, going all the way up to the brain and um, basically clearing out placking that might be in your vertebral artery or your um, your different arteries that are going on up there. So there's the the medical community is very into what's going on right now. It's not I mean, it's not going to be big, right? So the thing that the um, the books show, what they're learning in medical school right now or chiropractic school right now, mm-hmm. is it's going to take 15, 20 years before it gets into a textbook. Right. Uh, this is all emerging new sort of stuff. But, I mean, the theory, like I said, this the theory of adjusting the upper cervical spine has been around since the, since the late 
1800s. So uh, it, it's just uh, now that we have the science to actually see what's going on beyond, um, even beyond what we do in the office. But like I said, checking your checking your heat signature, uh, for lack of better terms, it's very non-invasive. I don't have to put you in MRI and inject you with different things to see what's going on up there. Right. We can we have another way of checking that. Drew, this has been some awesome stuff here. I want to be respectful of your time. Just close up with the last uh, couple things. One of the questions I always ask people who comes on the show is, who do you want to hear on this podcast, and what is it that you would want to hear them either talk about or like any specific questions that you would want to ask them? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I, you know what? Like I'm, like I said, I've been fascinated with Wim Hof. Yeah. And his breathing, breathing method. Um, I would really want to ask, maybe this is just my uh, um, unawareness of it, but I really want to ask what's the what's the progression of being a, being a person who's not experienced with this breathing method? Is there a progression to getting into doing some of the athletic feats that he's done? I mean, I think he said he ran a marathon and somewhere in Africa without drinking any water, so it's super yeah, hot. Yeah, he did. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to figure that out um, because it sounds it sounds amazing. That sounds great, but for the average person like myself, like, that seems nuts. And I don't know if I – it's kind of scary. <laughs> I yeah, is it applicable for somebody just uh, – a lay person almost, like, to, to pick this up, and can they progress to that, whether it's over a month or whether it's 10 years? Yeah, because he, you know, he talks about, you know, he's been doing it for a while and he's done all these different tests. Like, is there is there anything we can do to test to see where we're at relative to um, where he was when he's done these different things? I like it. I like it. Uh, in closing, where can the listeners find out more about you? Where can they find more about uh, if if they want to find somebody even in their area uh, for upper cervical? Uh, Help. Where 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 would you recommend they go uh, for for both of those? Gotcha. So uh, I'm up in Chico, California. So you can just type in uh, the specific Chico to be able to find us. Uh, but for anyone else around the United States, and actually we, we just uh, we're in the process of opening an office in uh, Barcelona, Spain, I believe it is. Uh, but you can nice. just go to thespecific.com. And you'll see all of our clinics. They're all over the United States. We even got one in um, in Hawaii. So right. people have to go over there. Um, but yeah, thespecific.com. Um, I'm teamed up with Mike Salemi. We're doing a few workshops. You can check out his website, uh, mm-hmm. kettlebelllifestyle.com. And um, yeah, but as you go on, if you if you go onto my profile in the specific. You can um, subscribe there and get onto my mailing list, and I stay I stay with people up to date of different things that I'm working on, and just the the theme I like to say is resilience. How can you better How can you better adapt to your environment? And um, so every everything that I write, blog, emails are all sort of geared towards that. Excellent, Dr. Drew. Thank you so much. Make sure everybody. Hey, if you're in the Chico area, give them a call. Get in, see see how we can help you out. Everybody else, go to the specific specific dot com. Hey, it, it, it's certainly uh, 
a good thing to check out. I think everybody should really uh, keep that upper cervical uh, spine in check uh, because it really can have a profound impact on your life, on your health. So, Dr. Drew, thank you again so much for everything today. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. All right, Drew. That was awesome. Cool, man. Thank you. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. You, there, there's so many things like mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you saying the, using more the uh, Turkish getup uh, as a mobility tool. I, of course, I recognize that, but never really thought about just using that as part of my warm up to really just get all the joints going through the range of motion. Yeah, it's, it's been pretty fun. That's um, I'm excited when we do this this upcoming workshop. Um, I think we're going to spend like an hour and a half on it. So yeah. It'll be good. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy it. It's, um, I use it as a shoulder rehab, because, um, mm-hmm. like I said, my my shoulder was pretty jacked from jujitsu, and then, uh, you know, when you do the RKC, you have to do that five minute snatch test. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there again is a perfect example of my of my connective tissue not being ready for for that massive amount of work of doing, you know hundreds and hundreds of snatches. But, yeah. Um, I use that. It's funny Funny enough. Have you read a lot of Pavel's books? Or any yeah, of I've, read, I've read at least three, four of them. Um, I had Power to the People. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, well, I can't do the side press because my shoulder really hurts, but I can do the deadlift. Mm-hmm. So my program was literally... Turkish get-ups on the days when my shoulder didn't feel like crap. Um, and then deadlift. I would deadlift like four or five days a week because I had my own bar in my garage. Right. And uh, it's funny because I, I just heard yesterday of this thing called the Texas Method. I think Ripito wrote about it. Yeah, that's um, what I figured. But uh, But it was like one high-volume day and then two two heavier days, but just a couple sets of three or five. Mm-hmm. And uh, naturally, that's how my programming typically worked. And I didn't even think about it. I would have one day where I would go light, but I would do, you know, 20, 25 sets of five. And, okay. Uh, for me, that provided a great stimulus. And I think within about a three-month period of just doing deadlifts and a couple get-ups, I put on about 15 pounds. <laughs> and without even trying, just like that, had that much carryover. That's awesome. Yeah, so that was that was pretty cool. And, and I was still doing swings. So like most people say, like, oh, if you want to power lift, just power lift and, and get stronger. Mm-hmm. But I was still doing swings because I wanted to kind of maintain a little bit of cardio, and I didn't like running. So <laughs> it was a good thing there. So. All right. Cool. Well. Drew, i got to get running. Uh, I'm in the clinic this afternoon, but uh, thank you again so much for the talk. I'll uh, let you know when everything is ready uh, so you can check it out then, too. Sounds good, brother. Thanks for the call, man. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget 
to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you.